Hey everyone, welcome back to the Zero to One M podcast. I'm your host, Waleed, with my co-host, Maddie. Hello. And this is the podcast where we interview your favorite creators about the good, the bad, mental health, the journey, everything in between. And today we have Miss Taylor Lorenz. Hi, guys. <laughs> she is a reporter right now for the Washington Post, but she's reported for so many other cool publications. And you're one of the first people I've seen to report on TikTok creators and YouTubers in a mainstream platform. So I think it helped a lot with the industry and just getting taken seriously. So I'm excited to chat. Yeah, me too. It's fun to be here. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's start with our favorite question. This is my favorite icebreaker. You have 60 seconds to brag about yourself. Oh my God. Just be shameless and be like, yes, this is why <laughs> I'm here where I am today because I did A, B, C, D, E, F. So... It's just a good way to level set the conversation and everyone will know who we're talking to. Mm -hmm. Are you ready? (laughs) Yeah. We have a timer for this. (laughs) Oh God, this is so hard. This is, I feel like I want to peel my skin off and die. (laughs) This is what every person says. (laughs) All right, let's go. We should probably start giving warnings. (laughs) Go. All right. Well, I will brag on my career because it's like the main thing that I'm known for. But yeah, I have been writing about content creators and online culture for in years, basically ever since I graduated college and I was a young person myself, I got really popular on Tumblr. You guys remember that? Of course. 2009. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I've written for New York Times, Atlantic, New York Magazine, like pretty much every like mainstream place at this point. I feel like I've worked everywhere, People Magazine, Entertainment Weekly, and I helped create this as a beat basically so that's kind of what i'm known for and oh god you i think i made seconds. it uh, you know i'm also just a nice person i think <laughs> that counts for a lot too so that's a good brag how did you end up getting into journalism and how did you move yourself towards becoming the it person in the space <laughs> Good question. Well, I didn't study journalism at all. I definitely not. I had all these weird kind of fashion internships in college. I worked retail. I graduated into the recession, like the 2008 recession, and there was no jobs. And I was hemp and I was working at a call center. And I had Facebook in college, but I wasn't that into internet stuff. But this was the era of blogs becoming big. And a girl, Kelly Bergen, this girl at one of my temp jobs introduced me to Tumblr. And I was on it like 18 hours a day after that. It it was like night and day. I, I was like, what is this platform? So I started making viral Tumblrs. This was like the fuck yeah era of Tumblr. Do you guys remember that? Like fuck yeah cupcakes, fuck yeah mm. sharks, things yeah. like that. Yeah. It was like the cool thing to do. And so I made a lot of tumblers that were what people called single serving tumblers that were like, that would get attention for different things. And then I myself had a tumbler and a bunch of media people really liked what I was doing and like brand people. So people from Tumblr actually hooked me up and I started to do marketing for social media. Like I was, I got a job at an ad agency running social campaigns, which was, this was really early days. Like Facebook had just launched pages in 2009. Wow. Twitter had just launched and blogging was was really early. And I just, when I was popular on Tumblr, some of the other people in that era were like the first generation of YouTubers. So I thought, you know, I'm going to write about this stuff because the way that the mainstream media was writing about it, I cannot explain to you. If you think it's bad now, they were writing about all of this stuff in the dumbest possible language 
I think these are loud. I'm going to take them off. <laughs> I can hear them like jingling. And I was just like, this is ridiculous. They don't know what they're talking about. This is all written as if they've literally never logged onto the internet. So I'm going to write about it. And it was a journey. For most of my career, I was running social strategy for brands and people and celebrities and stuff. And then also writing journalism on the side and trying to like peer pressure every single editor in the industry to make this a full-time beat because it really wasn't. There was this girl, Katie Natopoulos, who was like my hero and remains iconic, who's a couple years older than me at BuzzFeed, who was good and some other people. But it was it was not a beat the way it is today. So I thought, I'm going to do that. And then a couple other people were doing that at the same time, but they kind of stopped. Like they got a job at Netflix or they, you know, smartly went to go make more money. (laughs) And I was like, I'm just going to keep writing. And so I think I just kind of, I'm just like one of the older people on my beat now. So people just know me and I've written a lot of the main, like big stories over the years. Mm-hmm. That's so awesome. What was like your first outlet for writing blogs? Was that also on Tumblr? Yeah, it was. Tumblr was like where I was blogging, and then I was pitching a lot of these early digital media sites. I was writing for this website called FabFitFun, <laughs> which doesn't exist anymore. I like thank God those archives are gone. A lot of my early writing, actually, because these websites were like so nascent, is has been wiped off the internet, which is a blessing, but it makes me sad sometimes because we don't think about preserving our work. I always tell that to content creators too. These platforms can go away tomorrow, you know, and so you should always have the archive of your own. On note of platforms going away tomorrow, two of our favorite social media platforms, futures, TikTok and Twitter are kind of up in the air. What was it like watching Tumblr kind of start to fall down when it was something that was so near and dear to your heart? Yeah, I remember the day that Tumblr got acquired by Yahoo and talking to friends there. And it was, it it was, people were excited, but you could tell it was the beginning of the end because Yahoo mm. has <laughs> a really bad <laughs> reputation in terms of content and things just started to change. I feel like all of that stuff peaked in 2012 to 2014 and then it just started to fade. I think Tumblr really started to fade when video platforms like Vine and Instagram added video took off and our methods of consumption changed away from written words. And that era of blogging just got subsumed by the rise of digital media. So you saw these, you know, people were reading all these blogs and throughout the 2000s and then you saw Mashable, BuzzFeed and like all these things that kind of professionalized blogging. And I started to write for those websites too. I wrote for (laughs) Mashable and BuzzFeed and all that. But it was sad. I'm still sad. Like Mm -hmm. I think every creator, like whatever platform you blow up on, like you always have this nostalgia for it, you know, like I have friends that were really big on Vine and it's just you always... We all miss Vine, but there's something there. You want it to come back almost. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny because I was going back. I I mean, I've since deleted a lot of my old blogs and stuff because they're so embarrassing. But it's funny, too, what counted as viral back then. Because now the first YouTube channel to hit a million subscribers didn't happen, I think, until 2011. And so it was all just so small. I remember getting like 5,000 notes on one post and being like, this is the biggest thing on the (laughs) internet. And just now it all seems so small. What's your favorite social media platform? Because you've been through all of them after Tumblr. Yeah, I'm a writer. So I just love written Twitter, honestly, is like my toxic favorite in terms of consuming stuff, TikTok, because I can just sit on there all day. Mm -hmm. So since your work requires you to be on social media so much, how do you handle like addiction 
with it. I'm currently in TikTok rehab. I've been <laughs> self-admitted like four times where I just can't have the app on my phone. And how do you keep it from just, or, or do you just honestly spend hours and hours a day and like you're in the same black hole that everyone's a part of? I'm in the same black hole as everyone else. I feel like we all struggle with addiction. I think it's a matter of kind of having a healthy balance. Like I'm very glad that I am like a millennial, I guess I could say, because I think having my formative years and we had the internet and we had Facebook, but it wasn't like, the, you know, yeah. it's so different. And so I think it just allowed me to have a really strong sense of my offline self because I think when you're too dependent on what other people think of you and you're like too in it, it can be a lot. So I feel like I can spend, I'm on online like literally all day now, but I have a very strong sense of myself if I'm getting slandered for something or canceled for doing something dumb or what, you know, that how it is with like when mobs come for you, like you have to really believe in yourself and, and have a strong sense of self. Otherwise you can really spiral. I definitely take detoxes though. I, I mean, I've, I, with TikTok, I like go back and forth. I can never truly delete it because I report on it, but mm -hmm. I go through periods where I try and spend less time. I like move it to the fourth page of my phone yeah. screen. <laughs> mm -hmm. I grew up on the internet. I'm 22 now, but like similar to you, since I was 10 years old, I've been making like YouTube videos and all that stuff. And for kids and teenagers who are like growing up on the internet, I don't think they have developed themselves fully yet. Do you have any advice for them? on how they can do that? Yeah, I think the internet is so important because it allows you to expand your world and broaden your worldview and be exposed to so much. But I think that's obviously, it's like a double-edged sword. So I think you just have to make sure that you're developing really strong, close personal connections offline. Because mm -hmm. it can, I think sometimes it's like everyone turns to the internet for comfort and distraction, but it's just really important to have those like people that are like ride or die for you that are your real friends mm -hmm. that are not tied to the internet mm -hmm. that's yeah. hard for us it's hard it's hard for it's, it's, it's hard I mean, uh, like i was probably the last age group to be able to have formative years off the internet because i'm 26 and 96 is like literally the year that is debated of is it gen z is it millennial mm -hmm. so i feel like i get to teeter back and forth on what's beneficial for me at that point in time but yeah, the whole like kids being born with an iPad in their hand. Like, I will say it's too, only like, going to get even crazier. It's crazier and crazier. And I write a lot of stories about internet stuff. And now that I'm the age of a lot of my friends are starting to have kids and I'm very involved in like parent internet, no one is online more than like some of these mom groups. And it's just like people think of, oh, teenagers, young people so addicted to the internet. Let's talk about parents and their addiction and the amount of stuff that they put out, you know, in terms of photos of their own children and family information. And just like, I think, and boomers on Facebook who are a whole other <laughs> level of internet addicted, like we all, no matter what our age struggle with these addictive mm -hmm. technologies. And I think we just need to be really like mindful of that. Yeah. That's my mom. She's always telling my, my little brother, get off the computer, stop playing games. Whereas she's the one on Facebook all day, yeah. <laughs> like facing her pictures, putting pictures up, up there. It's so funny to me. <laughs> The mommy blogger point is interesting. I think we're really like as the first generation of mommy blogger kids grow up and they're starting to get their own voices, I think in the next few years, they're really going to start to be looked at in a different way. 
Because, like, there's now, you know, like, the 14-year-olds who have been online since they were four. I interviewed, I did a story a couple years ago for The Atlantic where I interviewed a bunch of kids about the first time that they Googled themselves. And basically, like, Mm -hmm. children between the ages of 6 and 12 about when they realized that they had an internet presence that that they didn't define because they didn't have social media themselves yet. It was all defined by their parents. And it was really wild. Like, some of these kids, one kid logged on, he got his first Instagram account, and he typed in his name and he realized that it was already a hashtag and his family and relatives had been posting with the hashtag of his name, like all of his childhood photos. And, you know, other kids realized, you know, they got to high school and they realized that all of their sports scores had been online. And like all of, a lot of classrooms have blogs, a face, a preschool had this open Facebook page of all these photos. And I interviewed kids and it was really interesting actually, because half of them or probably two thirds of them were really upset about this. There was this loss of control and they were like, this whole narrative about me on the internet is there that I can't define. And then the other kids were like, kind of felt like they didn't exist without it. Like this kid was like Mm -hmm. trying to get more photos of himself on Google because he was like 11 or something. And he felt like he didn't exist unless there was photos of him on Google. And a lot of kids talked about that and how they wanted followers and they wanted, and so they were kind of grateful that their mother had set up an Instagram account, which is really fucked up. That's, I think that just speaks to like how, these tech platforms have warped the way that even like really young children kind of view themselves. That's so interesting because I remember being 12 years old and because I was making videos, my if you type in my username on YouTube, mm-hmm. pictures of me would come up and I wanted to take those down. Yeah. Because kids in <laughs> my school would be like looking it up too and yeah. I didn't like it. So I wonder if it's like a generation difference. Totally. And also the stuff that we were putting on the internet is not what the 14-year-olds today are putting on the internet. We yeah, look so gnarly. <laughs> yeah. Like, we were hot messes <laughs> just showing it to the world. So we're all, like, pleased with the love of God, hottie. But I can't imagine, like, having my tantrums or, like, embarrassing moments or even, like, my first moments being mm-hmm. broadcasted out to the entire world. If nothing else, it just feels like a loss. Like, it, it changes the way that you view that moment because it's, like – being publicly consumed and I think it just it's invasive in a way you know I mean I just can't stop thinking about like the pedophilia aspect of things can we talk about the fact that like child influencers have the subscription stuff on on Instagram like I just wonder who's subscribing to some of that stuff it's weird as hell like it is and now they're making like PG versions of OF yeah which is also just as weird because these people are 18 years old I don't think they fully understand that Everything they put out there is going to be there forever. And they're just doing it because they need money right now. I don't think 18-year-olds understand. I mean, no. I know 18 is an adult, but it's... No, your brain doesn't you're... finish developing until you're 25. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 25. Mine's still developing. <laughs> <laughs> it's scary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we had one of our last episodes, we just <coughs> talked about the creepiness of men basically on the internet. We had two female streamers and just... Just the disgusting things that they'll do. And that was one of my questions for you because you have all of these so-called like haters and trolls. And I was wondering if they ever like sexually objectify you oh, for God. their own pleasure. All day long. And I mean, like, all day they're long. They're like, I hate you. I want to kill you. Yeah, but there's yeah, one let me, like, person jack off to your face. Yes. And wants to buy photos of me and you know, it's it's a it's a power thing, as we know, with like sexual assault. Mm. And it's really scary. And I have I have a couple people, including one man who's just aggressively stalked me for the past like year and a half. And, you know, 
it's really scary and really invasive. This man is, you know, requesting my family members' private and friends, like, private accounts to try and get content about me, whether it's photos or whatever. You know, he screen records every single thing I do. It it feels horrifying. As anyone that's dealt with stalking knows, it just takes – so it it terrifies you and it makes you feel unsafe. And it's disgusting and it's always men, unfortunately – yeah. Um, Our last guest, I live with her and her stalking has been so bad that the FBI has had to get involved. Yeah, I've spoken times. to the FBI. I've gotten authorities involved. I've physical had, security. Wow. Yeah. It's just it's crazy. I will say going through all of this myself and dealing with stalkers and harassment and all that, I think is really given me a lot of like empathy and understanding Mm -hmm. and the ability to report on that stuff so much better because I think a lot of stuff content creators are basically power users of these platforms and it's they're kind of like the canaries in the coal mine of all of these problems that are going to trickle down and everyone's going to end up dealing with and so I think being exposed that stuff like the silver lining is I think it's just allowed me to do a lot of like deep reporting on it and report on it in a way that like other journalists will never be able to because they fundamentally cannot understand it. Having never been through it. What are some things that you would recommend like as advice to people on the internet? Like steps that they can take for, let's say they're pursuing a social media career. What should they be doing to kind of counteract anything bad that could be happening? Like what what do you recommend for getting your information wiped off the internet or just tools and things that they should set up? Sign up for Delete Me. It's like... Google it. I think it's joindeleteme.com or something. It's a monthly subscription service that will scrape all of your personal information off a lot of third-party websites. Never put anything personal on the internet. Like I know I sound like such a boomer when I say that, but just be really careful. Everything, just know that every single piece of information that you put out there will be used by the worst people in the world against you. And so just be very thoughtful. That doesn't mean you're, like you're not going to post videos with your friends when you're out or something, but just just be careful and be mindful. And like, especially with family stuff, that's what I really mm-hmm. think we have to be careful of. And I don't even post stuff with friends because you guys know like fans, people on the internet, like they want to just reconstruct everyone's social network and they want to have opinions about you. And it's just a lot. And so I say put it on the close friends, you know, like definitely use the options available in terms of not everything has to be posted publicly. And yeah, sign up for Delete Me. That's like the main thing you can do. I have a separate like PO box that I use for addresses. California has this law where you can, if you are a victim of harassment and stalking and abuse, like you can sign up for this sort of alternate address, even on your driver's license. So your real address Mm. is never out there. Stuff like that. But just be mindful, you know, and just know that it's going to happen to you at some point if you are, especially if you're a woman, but there's people go after anyone, you know, all, all it takes is like one crazy person to get fixated on you. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any scams or fraudulent things related to this before? What do you mean? I don't know. I think one thing I see a lot is I see people making fake Instagram accounts, especially like entrepreneurs and yeah. They'll repost all of the same pictures as you, all the same captions. They'll even buy fake followers and fake likes to make it look legit. And yeah. then people think it's actually you, so they'll follow you back. Yeah, I've had people impersonate me on different social media platforms and say, I'm a journalist, and so I need to know your personal information, like credit card and stuff. <laughs> Instagram has always been good about getting those taken down, but 
you know, it's just, it's something that you just have to be mindful of and, and know. I think the whole thing with Twitter is crazy. The fact that they're just like selling verification to anyone with $8. Like already I posted a screenshot from this forum of somebody saying, I'm going to, I'm going to impersonate Taylor Lorenz. And so it's great. Okay. Something you have to be mindful of and hopefully, and educate your followers about too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That whole, so I used to work at Twitter. So like yeah. I was able to kind of get more of like a nuanced view of all of these problems and why they were so complex to solve in terms of like how abuse and bots and whatnot work. And he's just, he is doing everything from like a very one-sided point of view. And it's just terrifying watching how much like worse Twitter is going to get. Maybe it will get better at one point, but it's going to get ugly and ugly and uglier. Part of me mm. wants him to just destroy it and for it to bomb because I feel like Twitter has been stagnant for so long and small and not really scaling. And it's kind of in this like niche place where like really relevant people are on there, but it's just never going to compete with Instagram or TikTok and YouTube. And so part of me is, you know what, if it needs to die, maybe it just needs to go out in a, like a ball of flames and then we can have whatever is going to come next out of this because I do think we are entering a new phase of the internet and like maybe it's worth just accelerating that decline it sucks it's sad i love twitter like i'm a twitter mm-hmm. person for sure but yeah so that kind of brings me to this concept called skeuomorphism do you know what that is i feel like i've heard that but i don't tell me tell me what so it it's basically a little bit what you're talking about and you touched on it before but and i'm afraid i'm going to butcher this explanation but it's basically like we need to have a medium in a sense that we're comfortable with before it can fully jump to the next one. Like radio existed Mm -hmm. and then the first TV shows were radio shows that were just on TV. And where do you kind of see the internet moving? Because as you said, our form of content, like it's moving more to video and like away from kind of this written language. Do you see any of these shifts or can you predict anything you think? Yeah. About like where we're moving. Well, I do think I do think that like the written word, and I'm a writer, so I'm biased. Will never, you know, truly die. There are things that you can communicate in writing that are important. I think mm-hmm. writing will always be there. You have to write scripts for videos, yeah. so it's not like writing is going away. But I, I personally feel like we're reaching the end of these mass broadcast-based social networks. I feel like if the 2010s were all about let's connect everyone in the world at scale, and you can reach anyone in the world overnight, like. Now, I think a lot of people are like, I actually don't want to reach like everyone in the world. Maybe I just want to reach like my fans or people that are interested in targeting down to like your actual audience. That can still be a huge millions and millions of people audience, but it's about it's about targeted stuff and, and also having more thoughtful ways to reach the people that matter, like things like close friends and just like discord servers you know just like segmenting who you're talking to and being able to have useful conversations because we all know like twitter tiktok it's like you you try and have a conversation and it just gets sucked into some other area and then suddenly you can't even have a conversation because there's like people misinterpreting what you said or attacking you or disagreeing with you and it's i'm just trying to be on here to have to connect with the people that i want to reach so Mm -hmm. i think we're i think that that broadcast mass openness Mm -hmm. is something that we are I think that's we're reaching the end of it. Yeah. And how do you think that would be facilitated? Would it be like Instagram kind of filtering out all these other people? Or do you think it'll be like maybe white 
was it white glove services <laughs> yeah. white label services and where you yeah. can create your own community i think it's i'm sure that people will create their own communities whether that's like a discord server or whatever i just think that discovery mechanisms on the social platforms are going to be more important than ever TikTok really proves that right like tiktok does let you you know, discover new people and and kind of reach like certain niches. And I think it's still pretty open in the sense that things can get sucked in wrong. But I think that, I think that strong, I think any next generation social platform will need to have a really strong mechanism of discovery so that people can find, that's what people log onto these services and want. And if you log onto Twitter, it's the worst. I, I set up so a, bad. like I set up a spam Twitter account for my book initially. I don't know why. I was like, maybe I'll have a separate account. To, and I have never gone through like the user flow of signing up. It's the worst. And it also recommends you follow the dumbest stuff. It's like follow like <laughs> at NBA. I'm like, what? I don't. I don't even watch that. I don't. Where did you get this? It just it's it's a it's bad. And I think I think that's actually why Clubhouse failed too. It's let's talk about their discovery. They were like forcing everyone to follow like the partners at Andreessen Horowitz and it's no one wants that. You're you're no, you need to allow you're users. You're like first 2000 users wanted that and that was exactly. why they were there. You're not going to reach the masses with Mr. Mark. No. I'll never forget I was at this content house in Atlanta and one of them was like, yeah, Clubhouse is great, but you know, you get on, you have to follow these like old, weird, like old white guys. <laughs> but you just have to, you know, you just have to do that to get on the app. It's really annoying. And I'm like, oh, show me who those are. It's Mark Andreessen and Ben Orts. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is just, this shows like what a bad experience this is for users and how disrespectful to your users that some of these people are, like these VCs, that they will literally, you know, create a worse user experience just to get themselves a little more clout, like you're doomed. Your platform's doomed at that point if that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The TikTok algorithm, I think, is one of the best things that has been developed in recent history. What's your take on should the government ban it because of the spyware and whatnot that's built in for surveillance? Or do you think it's all just blown out of proportion, kind of? I think let's see the evidence. There's literally no evidence, you know? It's like, this is all theories. Oh, the CCP could X, Y, Z. It's okay, well, let's see the receipts. Like, you know, I think that there's a lot of like posturing. And I think if you're going to crack down or worry about, you know, Chinese influence on TikTok, let's talk about gaming and the fact that there's so much Chinese investment in money and ownership in gaming. And gaming is the number one form of entertainment, far more than movies or news or even TikTok and social media. People turn to gaming for entertainment. So if you're worried about Chinese influence in terms of our entertainment ecosystem and you're only talking about TikTok, then you're full of shit. I'm sorry. Because like you should be, it's it, it's a big issue. And also, by the way, if you're talking about data privacy and you're not bringing up Facebook, then you really have no to stand on because Facebook, no, I mean, we need comprehensive data privacy reform in the US, undeniably. Like it's terrifying the fact that like we don't have more control over where our data goes and our ownership of all that. But but we've allowed Facebook to run rampant. And I think Facebook has this very vested interest in making TikTok the boogeyman so that nothing ever comes back on them. But Facebook is a really pervasive, important social platform. And only one network has you know, been upending democracy in the US, and it is not TikTok. It is Facebook. And so I think we need to like think about when you know when you read those headlines, think about who's at play. That's not to defend TikTok because you know, it's owned by a powerful Chinese tech conglomerate. We should scrutinize that. But I think it's you need to be intellectually consistent with your things. And a lot of people just want to go, you know, rant about TikTok, but not actually fix the root problems. 
I think that's fascinating because it is so true and it's kind of scary because I've gotten to a point where I kind of like my Instagram ads because <laughs> I'm looking for something <laughs> and I find a version that's okay and then 20 minutes later it's giving me 10 options that are significantly better. Yeah. But at the same time it's we really do need to rein it in in some capacity or at least making sure they're like anonymizing and kind of like putting all of those protections in place because I mean, even the whole, it doesn't listen to you, like it listens to you or the proximity shit is way too, way too scary. I worry about it in terms of like discrimination, right? With healthcare stuff or with credit scores or with, you know, they take social media stuff into consideration for like mortgage stuff, mm -hmm. you know, like there's just so many, there's so much data about all of us. And I think we should be very, we should, we should rein it in. Cause like, it's crazy what a lot of these companies have access to and it's very dystopian and it's like the shopping stuff alone is, is scary, but you know, a lot of the other uses are also pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even know that you can be discriminated against. Cause right now I'm thinking like, Personally, I don't care too much that my they have my data, but I don't know what it can be used against for yet. There was this like really good article. I think it was in Wired. And I was trying to find it recently because I used to be like, who cares? Take all my data. Give me better yeah, I was ads. Like, I like my couch ads. But then I read a bunch more about it. There was some article and I have to find the article because it was it really it kind of spoke to people like with that viewpoint, which I used to have too, and like really explained the harm in it and and why you don't want that. I have chronic illness and I'm kind of a little bit open about it on the internet, but also I don't want like an insurer to buy mm. my data and decide that I'm higher risk and suddenly I'm charging, high, you know, I'm being charged higher premiums or something because of that, you know? So it's just, I think it's like all of this stuff, we just need to be careful. Yeah. And you know, we know that like the people in Congress have no idea what's going on. Oh my so. God. The freaking interviews with any of the tech CEOs. Yeah. I mean, it, it is just the perfect example of there needs to be an age restriction. What was that? Do you Finsta or something? What was he oh, saying? Richard yeah. Blumenthal that one time? Oh, there was one about the Finsta. It was like one, how do you Facebook? There's just been so many that have just been so painful to watch. Like these are the people making decisions and they can't even to begin to grasp the most yeah. simple functionality of the tools, yet alone the insanely sophisticated like data scrubbing and grabbing back end. Also just terrifying. Like, we're talking about online harassment earlier. People don't understand what online harassment looks like. Like they think, oh, it's just mean tweets or whatever. Like right now my Google results are being skewed by someone sending a allegedly massive amounts of traffic to like negative links about me to rank them higher. Someone paid a bot system to spam hundreds of thousands of accounts. Everyone that follows me and almost everyone that follows Washington, you got one to, to slander me messages like, the, that's what harassment, that's what it looks like. It's a smear campaign. It's really sophisticated smear campaign. It's not mean tweets. I don't, no one cares about that. We all deal with yeah. mean comments all day. Like it's like, that's the stuff that we need some sort of authority, whether it's a regulator or whatever, to step in and be like, hey, this is bad. This is harmful that, you know, people shouldn't be able to manipulate things this way. Yeah. Do you use any of the apps like Block Party or yeah. stuff like that? I do, but it doesn't have any of the functionality that I want, I, which is, which to be fair, to Block Party, which is great, it's, you know, restrictions on it's on Twitter's end on their API. It's, I think I think we should be able to segment our audiences on Twitter. So I want to be able to block everyone that engages with a tweet. If someone tweets, tweets I like- I thought Block Party did that. No, it only up to 500. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. So they can only do 500 people. Because of, and again, it's all, it's all like the limitations on block party are, are, are in large part Twitter's limitations. My feeling too is again, I don't, those are all great. My problems are with these like sophisticated smear campaigns and the way that the, the right wing media especially works to kind of like put false narratives out and, and people's lack of media literacy and they kind of eat it up and they don't understand. And, you know, a lot of people Google me, you would think that I'm like, you know, raping and killing children. And and that's because of these types of sophisticated smear campaigns. So we need to educate people about that above all else. Have, oh, sorry. You can go. I was going to ask, is there anything you can do? Can you contact Instagram to help? Do they do anything ever? No. No, because no, no, no. the, the app is we're, we're the payment. There's I, I got locked out of my Instagram account. And despite having so many connections in this space, it took me over a month to get my account back. Wow. And eventually one person helped me do it. And she was like, do not tell a single soul that I work for Meta because yeah. I am not doing this for anybody else. And I was in contact with five Instagram employees. Wow. So that is what support is like. So awful. they're not doing anything. Yeah. Literally anything because you're the product. Exactly. I hate that. <laughs> Have you invested any of your own personal resources, like money, obviously a lot of time into uh, hiring like investigative staff or to no, do I'm stuff? No, I'm a reporter, like so like I investigate everything, but I have had security that my company has paid for because I've needed security at yeah. certain points. But yeah, and then I've worked with, you know, there's nonprofits like this one, Advanced Democracy, put out this 80-page report detailing a lot of the sophisticated harassment that had been made against me. And very sort of like, I think the harassment stuff is well known that I deal with it. And, and so people kind of make me a case study. Brookings Institution did a case study on Tucker Carlson's attacks against me, I think like a year or two ago. He He's always ranting about me, but... So it's helpful to have those things because because I'll tell you who really doesn't understand the internet, anyone in media, like anyone in a position of power in media, I think it's, you know, these are not people that grew up on the internet either. And I think mm -hmm. there's a big learning curve there. And it's really important that newsroom leaders understand how these campaigns work and understand that their goal is to pick off, you know, vulnerable reporters, frame them as controversial, and that ultimately, you know, it, it discredits the institution, but they don't, they often believe, like they, they don't know what's happening. It's crazy. Legacy media, it's different, you know? It's, it's, a, it's a lot of learning that has to happen, I think, there. Yeah, it goes back to the congressmen and women not being able to understand the sophisticated like ad technology, and it goes right back to that with traditional media. Like they just they have that idea you spoke of earlier where they think it's, oh, you're just being bullied online. It's, no, they're literally going after every single person that supports you, follows you, your family. It's so much more than and just... And it's reputational harm. It's reputational. Yeah. It's the fact that anybody these days now introduces me, I'm constantly introduced as like a controversial journalist. And I'm always like, what did I do that's controversial? I reported on libs of TikTok. Libs of TikTok is controversial. <laughs> They're the ones getting trans people fired. Me writing a story, aka doing my job, is not controversial or shouldn't be controversial, you know? And so I think, I think 
the media needs to understand that. But the media has no idea how to cover online harassment. You have a bunch of dumb media reporters, and a lot of media reporters sit on Twitter all day, and they just write up Twitter drama. And that is what they think is media, which is so crazy, as we know. The real media is like TikTokers, YouTubers. You want to talk about where kids are getting their news information from? It's not. It's not Twitter. It's not Twitter. <laughs> it's just and us it's hanging out not on some Twitter. Legacy journalist on Twitter. Like yeah. they really don't give a shit. Yeah, it's just funny. Do your fans ever get involved? Do they ever try to fight back, like on your behalf? Yeah, I've I. I think like anyone, you have people who follow you who really feel upset and want to defend you. And I'm very careful not to, I don't ever want them to do that. I never want people to do that for me. I, I find it very unnecessary and kind of unhelpful. And sometimes they will go after people who they think are maybe, you know, slighting me in some way. Mm -hmm. And I don't want that either because then they're just attacking someone. One time they thought my friend was being rude to me, a very good friend of mine was joking oh with me God. on Twitter and they're like, you know, attacking him. And it's, guys, this is my friend, chill out, you know. But I I, I value my readers and like I value my audience and I try and speak to them and write stories that they engage with. But I never want them to develop a parasocial relationship with me, ever. That's why I never mm -hmm. put anything about myself on the internet, ever, nothing personal. Mm -hmm. They don't know. So I think it, it makes it less you know, the, the creators that lean into that parasocial bond, they get that a lot more. Yes. So since the internet is your job and you have to consume content to write these articles and all these stories, when you're dealing with this bullshit, like with Tucker or you're being harassed, how do you, how do you deal with that? You just <laughs> yeah, it like off? How, do you, how do you off? handle when you're in the thick of it and shit hits the fan and you are now enemy number one. Yeah. Like, how does your life change in those situations? I mm -hmm. think my concern is for my family because, you know, my parents have been swatted and harassed a lot. And like my family members have had to deal with a lot of the brunt of my harassment campaigns. And I opted into it. They did not. And, and friends of mine as well have gotten really threatening messages and had their family's docs just for being tagged with me in an Instagram photo. So I kind of worry about them first. I don't mind. You guys, I cover YouTubers for a living. So, you know, everything, getting docs, like, you know, I had PewDiePie make a video about me years ago. I've oh had the God. Jake Paulers did everything that Tucker's done, you know, eight years ago. So mm -hmm. I think I'm kind of used to it. It's more of a, oh, here we go again, you know. Mm -hmm. Has it ever jumped from the internet into your real life? Absolutely. Several times. And I've been assaulted and on the like job. People sh oh my God, yeah. assaulted on the job. Yeah, I got punched. It was, and also just I've had people show up to events, and that's scary. I got walked out of VidCon this panel with by four security guards this year. Like it does, people do, and people have come up to me and confronted me, and and you know it's very scary. I've had people come and try and find where I live, and that's that's the it never stays online. It never mm -hmm. stays online. It's it's online is real life. Online is the default reality, by the way. And so stuff that happens there, of course, it's going to trickle out into the real world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, It's also interesting because some of the streamers, their stalkers are or abusers are like 15, 16 year old kids. Yeah. So it's much harder for them to make that jump. But you're also targeting an older demographic with the people who have the means. The people who are mad at me are like that. the Fox News viewers, though. That yeah, yeah it's like they have the means. Yeah, and also they're aligned with very powerful interests. Part of the reason that I get this kind of 
attacks is because I work for places like the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Atlantic, these institutions that billionaires want to destroy. It's it's rooted. It's not just like the content creators are getting the harassment and all of that stuff. But what I'm getting is also anti-media hate and hate against journalists. And I completely understand why people hate journalists, by the way. I, I really do, because I think the media has failed people in so many ways over the years that they're so right to be angry about, you know, certain things. I completely empathize with that. But but it's not okay to target specific people and try and destroy their lives, you know? I think we need better media and we need to make the media better. And, you know, the way to do that is not by running some woman out of town and attacking yeah. her family members. It's just like cancel culture as a whole. Yeah. And no one deserves to be canceled. Like some people do a little bit, but it just needs to stop. Like everybody needs to chill out and the internet needs to heal. Like people people care too much about too many things at this point in time that you can't actually care about what's important. Like you have fatigue of outrage. Which is, I think, you know, intentional too by a lot of these powerful interests that stoke outrage and keep, you know, stoke these cycles and keep these narratives in you know, ever present. And I think we need to focus on those powerful interests that are trying to dismantle the media and trying to dismantle criticism and, you know, attack anybody that wants the world to be a more equal place. Like we need to focus our criticism on those. That's fascinating. People. What are the exact reasons these powerful people are against the media? Is it because they're being reported on? Is yes. it just ruining their businesses? <laughs> Hugely, yes. They want yeah. to be able to be billionaires and operate without impunity, right? Mm -hmm. They want to treat their workers like shit exploit people. They want to discriminate against people. A lot of them are fundamentally racist. You see people, they want to create a white ethno state. You know, those are those are the forces at work. And these are very powerful people that want these types of things and billionaires that are backing, you know, extremist political candidates and things like that. So I think we need to remember that all of that and, and not and just just recognize that there's a, that that you're being played at some point, you know, with the, with a lot of the outrage stuff. Mm -hmm. If you had all the control in the world, what would be the first few steps you would take to combat that? If like you had the power to start making change, what do you see as those steps? Well, I think we need a new media ecosystem. So I would, I would, I think we desperately need a new media ecosystem that is inclusive, that speaks to people, that reports on really, that, you know important issues. And I think the legacy media is fantastic and important. And these are really in important institutions, but they're by no means without fault. And I think we need to reach young people in a way that they kind of can relate to and understand. So I would do a lot of things, but I think I, I'm in media. So yeah. I care a lot about media and journalism. And I think there's not a lot of media literacy happening either. Do you have hope? No. Well, sure, I guess, maybe, but not really. <laughs> I don't know. Things are bad, but, you know, things can change quickly. We mm -hmm. see how quickly things can change, you know, all the time. Like bad things happen. Things can get really bad really quickly. Things can also get really good really quickly. It's mm -hmm. just that we all have to remember that, you know, sort of like who go attack powerful people and don't punch down. You know, I think that happens a lot on the Internet. People attack some other person on Twitter for not, you know, being perfect or saying something the wrong way, or maybe they posted a stupid TikTok. And I just think we need to 
remember who who has the power in the world and hold those people accountable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's so fascinating. It's not the one person who used someone's like wrong pronoun. Like they are not uh, unintentionally. There's obviously people who do it like abusively, but it's like people are just like they they can't accept that people still need to learn some of these things, and then they just go off and attack, and then make that person so much more closed off. And they're yeah they're they're completely fostering the outrage against the wrong people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, speaking of really bad things happening, there's a lot of, lot of talks about like a recession. How do you think that's going to affect the creator economy and the tech space? Good question. I know I saw Facebook might be laying people off as mm-hmm. soon as Wednesday. I think as somebody that sort of came of age in the last big recession, I think recessions are a time of opportunity in some ways because. It's, it's hard. I think it's going to affect the creator economy in the sense that rising dollars are not going to be spent, you know, as much. People don't want to have spend expendable income on subscriptions. But I think that it's also a time when, especially if you're young, like the stakes are can can be pretty low for you. It's not like you generally have a mortgage or a family or anything. So I think it can be a time of opportunity where like you can be a little more creative and just kind of I don't know, invent new things like a lot of a lot of I mean, if you think about the startups that came out of the last recession, we got a lot of really important Mm -hmm. platforms and exciting things. So I think, you know, recessions are always kind of bad, but it is if you're going to be in a recession, if you're young, I think it's better than if you're older. Mm -hmm. And a lot of creators tend to skew young. Creators are also like so entrepreneurial like to be successful at a creator like as a creator it's like you have to know how to write you have to know how to edit like you have so many marketable skills that if you have to take some crappy brand job for a couple years to ride it out like it's going to be fine I think that creators are 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 you know hopefully resilient enough to kind Mm -hmm. of make it through but it's definitely Mm going to be hard times I think you know we just don't have all the money that we used to yeah and this will be I think the first true cre- like creators being at the forefront recession. And I think it'll be interesting because the eyeballs will still be there. Like I think the views and if anything, it could be something where it maybe even increases because it is a free form of entertainment for the most part, like showing yes. up on TikTok, on Twitter. You don't have to pay for any of those things. So I'm curious to see if that has an impact and hopefully maybe it could counteract a little bit. But yeah, it's the first time we're going to see creators in a recession. Mm-hmm. It's going to be interesting. Yeah. yeah. And I do think that's a really good point about, you know, in terms of the free entertainment aspect of it. I think people, I think there's also just a recognition that people are not paying what they used to. Netflix is, you know, rolling mm-hmm. out a cheaper tier with advertising and stuff. I think everyone's cutting back a little bit. Mm-hmm. And we'll see. I just think, like I said, I think we're kind of this era of these big platforms is definitely faltering with Twitter. Who knows what's going to happen with TikTok? I think Instagram's been a little stagnant. I'm excited to see like what comes next. And sometimes during economic instability or bad times, like that's when people get to build interesting things. Thoughts on Be Real? Oh my God, I love Be Real. But I don't post on there that much because I'm so paranoid that someone's going to see where I am. Mm. But I love Be Real. I'm interested to see from a product perspective if they evolve or grow or, you know, how much yeah i felt like a boomer trying to use that app like the ui just it did not work well with me and i was like wow i officially actually feel like i'm on the older side of things because well i had front back which was the original 
version of be real that was like it was not the same as be real but it was like the simultaneous the, the front yeah. and back photos mm-hmm. it wasn't it didn't have that push notification i think i mean i think be real is interesting but i think for any tech product to truly succeed it has to kind of evolve a mm-hmm. little bit you can't just they're going to have to build out the product and so it'll be interesting to see how they build the product out but i think people want simultaneous experiences you know and that's what it gives it gives that like that sense of community and ephemerality and and it, it goes back to where you think the future is heading with these more kind of closed off mm-hmm. social mm-hmm. communities yeah so i can definitely see it get bigger you, you, they just need to warn you about that whole thing <laughs> like the first one i took i was like <laughs> and cool picture in the front but the selfie that it just like automatically posted I couldn't figure out how to delete it like, okay, you can I'm retake done. it but it'll say like how many times you take yeah. it so. I'm, I'm done I know I, I posted like three times but I need to try it out again I but post it when I'm doing something when it gets me at a good time I'm like all right Same. I'm out it's fun I'm not posting it in my bed on my computer which is like 90% of the time it, it hits same. I'm always in front of my laptop when I get it. Yeah. If I got it right now. And it's best great. Belief, Here's my I'm Gmail. <laughs> it would be good if one came right now because we're right? like podcasting. <laughs> I check. I, I turn like those notifications off after me it like too. bullied me like well, that's the other 30 thing. times to post and I never posted. I was like, I just got a friend request on well, it. Also, like once you're in this world, notifications are useless. Yeah. And not even if you're in this world. Just the amount of notifications that apps post these days. It's crazy. The noise is insane. I have all notifications off except texts from my mother and be real because you have to have notifications on. I'm trying to think what else. And slacks from my boss. Yeah. Mm. I've had to like, my slacks just wouldn't show up. So I've had to make sure that is basically the only notification that I'm seeing. Turned off all the little bubbles that tell me how many mixed texts I have. I'm like, if I can't see it, it doesn't exist. Yeah. Do y'all think having, I feel like all of us have a lot of online relationships or like just in general, do you think not replying right away kind of hurts these? I actually feel like I, well, I don't know how about you guys. I feel like it's like you reply right away or kind of never sometimes Mm -hmm. or like. Yeah, I catch up all at once. There is a really, okay, Joanna Stern at the Wall Street Journal is one of my favorite journalists. And she wrote a piece about how like the text message inbox is like the new email where like, it's just like builds up and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, I have to go through it. And I, that piece was so good. I was so jealous. I wish I wrote it. Cause I was like, <laughs> yes, it is like that for me at least. Like, I feel like we need a new app where like fewer people <laughs> message. Yeah. yeah. It's exhausting. I get tired. It, it feels like a chore just to have to reply to people. Cause then- yeah. As soon as you reply, let's say to 10, you just started 10 new conversations. And it's crazy because I'll message someone and then I have to talk to them again at the end of the day and I'm scrolling. I'm like, how have I possibly communicated with 40 separate people just in my text messages in one day? I think they need to really fix the text interface because like, it's what is Apple doing? Well, unread text. They know. No, what? they do now. But I don't have to update iOS 16. But okay. it still does, it doesn't even. You can't they like filter it and find it. It's yeah. so hard to find stuff. I just, I feel like anyone that knows me that's my friend knows that I'm just not going to reply to it. And also a good friend will mm-hmm. be like, fine. If my friend doesn't reply, I'm like, oh, whatever. Like I'll text him again. Mm-hmm. And I'm big on phone calls, like in the sense of if my friends know that like, if we really want to chat, like we'll just be like, 
okay, I'm going to call, like, they'll text me, can I call you? And I'll be like, yeah. And then they'll call me and we'll chat about whatever. Because mm-hmm. I feel like it's, if you're a friend and you want that immediate answer, you just know that you're not going to get it on text all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've never been like a phone caller, but more recently, I love it. Just like random phone calls or to whoever. I've been doing a lot of voice messages. Me too. too. I've really started liking that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm in a lot of group chats and we like do that a lot, Mm -hmm. which is great. And then you feel mm-hmm. all cool, like this message isn't going to exist in two hours or whatever. It's so stressful when someone saves it, though. I know. Yeah. I I'm hate like, that. I'm like, what are you I doing with that? sent you a voice message so that it wasn't permanent. <laughs> and they go and save it. I'm like, can you please not? I know. Mm-hmm. One of my friends is like, oh, I have to save it because I always forget to listen to it the whole way. And I'm like, I don't think you have to save it. You can just replay it. It won't expire if you don't play it through the whole way, you know? Oh, that's mm-hmm. good to know. You mentioned your book. Tell us about that. Yes. So I'm writing a book. It comes out next year. Book timelines are so slow. It's kind of crazy, the publishing industry. But it's for Simon & Schuster. It's called Extremely Online. It's about the rise of the online creator industry, basically. So it's kind of from like 2004 to 2020, how this it's, – it's kind of like everything I've reported on for the past 12, 13 years of like mm-hmm. how these platforms rose and how this industry arose and how we all – became addicted to the internet and yeah what's your favorite message or your favorite thing that you're excited for more people to learn about well I got so triggered in 2020 when all the tech people finally took creators seriously because they were basically shitting on it for you know a decade and they were always like that's a niche market and then in 2020 you saw all of them talking about the creator economy which is a term that they basically invented two years ago and and It kind of triggered me into writing a book, honestly, because I was like, they have the history all wrong. They're like putting themselves in the history. And that's just not Mm -hmm. true. And like so much, you know, so much of the internet was built by women and people of color. And like, if you think of mommy bloggers were like the original people that like bought, you know, brought blogging mainstream and the original YouTubers were not cool. It's not like house guys. Mm -hmm. Like they were like weirdos that, that really pioneered these new formats and, and upended the entertainment industry and, and our media environment. And so I'm just excited for people to kind of like ha- know more about that and, and know more about the people that were impactful and kind of also just look back themselves. I think anybody that like grew up on the internet will find it interesting because it's you will probably read it and be like, oh my God, I remember that. Oh my God, grumpy cat. Like I remember <laughs> that, you know, but what you might not know is, you know, that was the first animal to build a multi-million dollar internet business. And also, all the famous internet cats have the same manager, which is crazy. Wow. <laughs> this guy who manages like all these memes. And there's just a lot of like fun things like that that I think people might not know or might have forgotten about. And I think it's so funny too, even the word creator, you know, that wasn't even coined until the 2010s. Before that, people were called celebrities, <laughs> oh um, my God. you know, fame balls. There were all these stupid names for like influencers, basically. And there was the webutant ball. Like it just, there's a lot. I'm excited. I will so love this I book. Hope, yeah. like, I feel like I hope that Gen Z people will read it and just be like, wow, this is crazy. Because, you know, they're like eight years old. But it just – I think so much stuff that we think of today gets associated with Gen Z has been in the works for 15 years and was pioneered by people that were really That's crazy. It's going to be a history book for Gen Z. <laughs> kind of. <laughs> Except my editor keeps being like, don't say it's a history book because no one will buy it if you say that. I'm like – Okay. <laughs> but it's not. It's I mean it's about it's it's about all these things. And also just I mean it's a lot of my perspective on on the way things are going and and how we should view the media. 
because the media is that's I mean I basically consider myself a media reporter even though I'm technically a tech reporter so. how do you feel about the creator economy do you like that it's gotten so much steam does it kind well, of feel yeah. like phony to you because of what you just said the term is ridiculous the term is like something that the tech people made because they had shit talked in the word influencer so much that I think they had to break it I did like a tweet for a while like in 2020, it was like all the VCs that were saying they were creator economy. And then I juxtaposed it with all the tweets they had posted over the years about influencers, mm. just like how full of shit they are. I'm shitting on VCs a lot. I actually love a lot of VCs. There are good VCs that never did that. You know, Lightspeed, TCG, people that really invested in media businesses. Mm -hmm. But, you know, others were not that way. But I, no, I think it's amazing. I truly, truly think that it's a better model of, of media in so many ways. And I think that our traditional media environment was old and white and exclusive and broken. And so I think it's like the the benefit, hopefully, of having of, of the creator economy is a more diverse media ecosystem, which is good. The downside, of course, is that it also, that means that crazy people can have a lot more, you know, mm -hmm. impact too. And we have a lot of like radicalized YouTubers, but I think we're in an inflection point, but overall, I think it's very good. Mm -hmm. And um, VCs are obsessed with the metaverse right now. What does that mean to you? And what do you think about it? They're obsessed with like something new every six months. I, <laughs> so I was like, so VR pilled in like 2017. I taught myself, what was it? C sharp some programming language to use <laughs> Unity because I was teaching myself Unity. I wanted to build VR experiences. I, I tried to become the first 360 video vlogger and Ooh. I had a p Facebook page called Taylor 360 of my 360 video vlogs. Like, I'm just telling you, trust me, I wrote about VR. I, we're not at that yet. We're just not at that yet. And when I was really into it, we had this thing called Altspace, which was social VR, which got bought by Microsoft. And we just don't have the technology to do what they want to do. And if you want to think about the metaverse, which is basically like this online world, right, that you go into, that you have an identity. We already have that on the internet. That is what the internet is. And I don't think you need this embodied, like, CGI, stupid, like, VR thing to go into to express yourself digitally. Like, we already have digital personas that we live through and express our identities through every day online. So I think we're kind of living in the metaverse already. Mm -hmm. And we don't need like a VR headset. And I think Facebook is flailing because they don't know what to do to save their business. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to CES, which for yeah. people that don't know what that is, it's where so many like electronics and tech products get launched. And I was going in like 2014, 2015 and VR and 3D printing were like the coolest things ever. Like they had huge, huge, huge convention halls dedicated to only those two things. And wow. as I continued to go throughout the years, it just, those areas continued to get smaller and smaller. There was all this hope as soon as you could put an iPhone in one of those plastic holders. <laughs> yes, and, the Google. Oh my like God. they had cardboard ones with lenses <laughs> yes, in them the and people were just like so excited and it's just, it's so fizzled. And I know the technology is getting better, but but it's not there yet. It's they're, not they're even like, remotely there yet. They go do workouts on. That's what they're advertising. Meta's yeah. advertising their headsets to do workouts at home. <laughs> Meta is off the rails. They've lost the plot. I. It's. It's just. Yeah. Also, are you going to trust Facebook if we're going to live in some metaverse? Are you going to trust Facebook? Like the the. That has the uh, talk about privacy. Like I would much rather buy a headset from Apple or like somebody that one has a history of That's making coming good, out soon. But the history of making good you know, privacy-centric 
hardware products and software like and have we not seen anything with like, an Instagram trying to do product development like they are they've just ripped everything off for the last five years a decade yeah how are they supposed to be the ones pioneering this new innovative digital experience when they haven't been able to do that in five years yeah, like if anything first. snapchat i think also totally. could be a good contender mm-hmm. i Snap, agree yeah I think they just laid off most of their VR team, though. So. Snap is, I was going to say, Snap's also struggling. And all these platforms are, are struggling right now, and we're in a, like, a contraction. We're in, like, in a tech, tech recession. Like, yeah. I feel like tech is what's really going to get hit the hardest. I'm not totally sure what else is happening in the world recession, but I just feel like tech is probably where most of the onslaught's going to be because it's already so bloated whereas other companies have probably been running a little bit more lean over the years. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I think, I, yeah, I just think that it's it's just so early still. And anybody that spends time in these spaces, it's like you don't want to, even the Facebook engineers building these experiences don't want to hang out in these spaces. And I think Facebook's too early right now on it. And they're, they're, they're pivoting that way because they have to out of desperation, which is never a good, you're never going to be successful if that's if you're just desperately like trying for things. Yeah, and like that photo that Mark Zuckerberg posted of oh, like his, him with like the, the Eiffel Tower, back, <laughs> and then Facebook came out and said, "Oh my God, no! It's because we were rushing to put something out." It's like, but it looks like something from Windows ninety five. Yeah, I'm like, also, <laughs> I don't think Facebook like rushes per se. There's so many different chain of commands to put anything out into the world when you're that big of a corporation. There's no way that was a complete fluke a complete mistake when they're launching one of their biggest things on their ceo's profile i did try i was at code conference this year which is this tech conference and they had these contact lenses that they wouldn't let you put the contact lens in your eye but they had it like on a stick that you could hold up in front of your eye and it tracked your movement and it was like an ar contact lens and it was the coolest thing i've ever seen and you could click that way or look that way to click something else and it would Mm -hmm. augment your reality and show all these different things like directions or things like it like on your actual eye like it was a that's crazy contact lens wow. I think they're really gonna have to focus more in on like industrial use cases first for like worker yeah. safety and yeah. whatnot the mm-hmm. whole social personal like metaverse thing it's sexier but you need to go where this could actually one help problems. Yeah. You can have goggles. There's this company called Mira that does it. Yeah. And it helps construction workers make sure they're following safety protocols or reminding them to do things or being like, oh, no, you shouldn't go in that area. And the unsexy ways are the easier ways to make money as it is. Going mm-hmm. social first is like the worst thing you could possibly do. It's quite literally the hardest, I think. Yeah. Go to where the ugly problems are and Try to fix those first. Totally. Yeah. I read somewhere that I think sex products, like they technolo- technologically advance first. I, I if did VR porn start. at CES yeah. and wow. it was really funny because they couldn't figure out a female experience. There was no <laughs> way to, I don't know, make it worthwhile for a woman basically. <laughs> so I did a male experience. And I mean, I could see men or people that are into that definitely using VR porn. And this was in like 2015, 2016. I think it was the year I went back and there was very few VR products and that yeah. was one of them. There were all those booms. I mean, we've had so many booms and busts. 3D printing. 
Yeah, oh my god, 3D printing. That I, was I remember that era of yeah, and I remember so many people and you would go everywhere and they were like we have a three D printer and and like I went to the New Balance store and they were like and we're three D printing and I'm like why just why <laughs> for why? what reason for what and reason? you know how like printers just get upset at you yeah and don't work like they just decide not today I can't even tell you how many issues existed I was in like a three D printing club I went to CES with a three D printing company. And oh my God. The one 3D printing so, story so bad. that I did do that I loved is a bunch of kids. I think this was like, I did the story like 2016, 2017. It was the year the fidget spinners were really big. <laughs> and they formed a 3D printing club and they just used the school's 3D printer to 3D print thousands of fidget spinners and sold them online for a huge amount of money. And they made a lot of profit. And then the school was like, wait, what? You're using school resources to run your 3D printing fidget spinner business and shut it down and whatever but I was interviewing the kids and they were like yeah we're just making money and we're just like but they joined the 3d printing club good for them it was I was like good for you you deserve it but that was like the best use case of Mm -hmm. 3d printing I've ever heard of honestly Mm -hmm. I actually there was this nonprofit where you could 3d print prosthetic hands and you would 3d print all of the different pieces And then you would put them together using wire. And literally by moving your wrist, if you didn't have a hand, the hand would contract and open back up. And they were doing them for children because when you're a child, you're obviously growing. So prosthetics are so expensive. So I will say that was that was really cool. I can show you guys a video where literally like I put it on a kid and. His hand is opening and closing. I love that. I guess I should say like medical, like you're yeah. saying before. It's like the industrious. I'm just talking about like consumer. Oh, no, yeah. The consumers. Consumer, I just don't think consumer. Yeah. We mm. would just print ourselves those things to walk late at night by yourself as a girl with those cat ears that were oh, basically yeah. spikes <laughs> to gouge someone's eyeballs out. Like I think that was the most useful thing I ever printed in three years of having access to a 3D printer. Hey, you got something out of it. Yep. <laughs> Some kid got a hand. So <laughs> we gave a good amount of hands. Also, Taylor, we have a few questions. We covered most of them. But Erin Lay asked, as a young woman entering journalism, what's your best advice to offer? Good question. Other than all the online safety stuff of delete all your personal information off the internet, I guess I'll give like career advice of getting into journalism, which is just start doing it. There's no bar, you know, like journalism is one of those few industries where you can enter it just by writing and start your own Substack or start your own podcast or make your own video interview series. You know, just dive right in. Don't wait for someone to give you an opportunity because there's yeah there's no there's no like bar for entry and and I think that's the way you get hired is basically these days it's like doing and you learn by doing you know mm-hmm. and join your student newspaper of course too but and network you know like I always say get online reach out to other journalists that you like and just put your stuff out there mm-hmm. I love that super active get yeah. into it and then I feel like this I don't know who this is. Someone named Lorenz Propaganda asked, what do you do when you feel like you can't write? Oh my gosh. Wait, is that the person, the Instagram account, Lorenz Propaganda? That's so funny. That's somebody that has the same last name as me. And I I followed them back because their username was hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was like, is this like an account? Like I have accounts that are like fan accounts or something. And I was like, is this a fan account? And I was like, oh no, it's just this guy that like, (laughs) I think his last name is also Lawrence. What was the question though? That's so funny. I thought it was like a relative or something. No. But the question was, what do you do when you feel like you can't work? 
like every day. Watch TikTok. I don't know. I just kind of try. I kind of, I view work as I have like waves of motivation. Mm-hmm. And and just over the years, I feel like I've, I'm in between a wave. I don't try and force it. I take mm-hmm. a nap. I do whatever. I miss deadlines a lot. So this is part of the problem maybe. But but I like produce so much that it doesn't matter. But I just kind of wait for another wave to come. I have really bad ADHD, which apparently a lot of other people with ADHD have a similar mm-hmm. strategy. Of you you're just either meet- locked in or you're not exactly. and there's no hope. Yes. Mm-hmm. And there's no making yourself. Yeah. So pressure and anxiety. With journalism, you're, you're often competing for a story. So you're like trying to get the story out. It's news. So that is like an inherent like motivator mm-hmm. or just the anxiety of missing a deadline can be a motivator sometimes, but I don't have a good, I wish I had like better tips for. I feel like you can't really force creativity. You can't. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. telling that to my editor next time. They <laughs> <laughs> that's all my questions. Do you have anything yeah. Else? This has been great. I don't think I have anything else. Do you have any questions for us? Oh God, I didn't even think of any. <laughs> you don't have to have any. <laughs> no, I no, I love I'm I'm honored to be here, truly. And I hope anybody that's listening knows they can reach out to me anytime. I'm always looking to talk to people. If somebody heard something I said and they want to talk to me about it, my DMs are open. Mm-hmm. I don't see everything, but I try to check most of them. So if you message me enough, I'll probably see it and yeah, just reach out. I think journalism is something that we really need young people to pursue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I really hope that they want to get into the industry. And I also just will say, don't ever, if you're a young journalist, don't ever make your goal to work somewhere, ever. Like when I worked at the New York Times, this editor was like, basically, welcome to the top. You know, he said something like that when I was there. And I was just like, it's not my goal to work here. Are you crazy? Never make your goal in life to work for a specific company. One, because you're going to work there and realize it's not as great as you think it is. You've put never put a company on a pedestal, period. No company is, is going to live up to your expectations. And two, you really end up restricting yourself in terms of your career. Like you should kind of see where things go and, and, and do, do the best work that you can do. And most of the time that's not at whatever company. I think it's, you know, you can be really inspired by like a company like Nike or something. And it's maybe your goal is to work there, but maybe try and build your own Nike or, you know, mm-hmm. do your own thing and, and don't ever make it your goal to work at a specific place. I think that's a good end for young people. Uh, when <laughs> is your book coming out? Next week, like literally next year, like next September, October. So like a year from oh, now. Okay. So stay we got tuned. a minute. Trust mm-hmm. me, I'm going to be promoting this shit out of it. So <laughs> you will know. You will not miss it. You yeah. can come back for another episode before it comes out. Oh, I will. I'm holding <laughs> okay. you to it. Thank you so uh, much. Thank you. And we'll see you guys next time. Peace.